Last time on Queer Dungeoneers. Yeah, okay, you got me. It's not Sammy. Season one has come to a close and Sammy is taking a well-earned break. So we asked you, our listeners, to send us all your QD-related questions. Thank you to everyone who submitted. We got so many, I've had to split this Q&A into two parts, so keep an eye out for part two next week. Anyway, over to me. Hello and welcome everyone to this very special 101st episode, I guess, of our campaign, where we're going to be doing a little Q&A with questions that y'all submitted. So thank you to everyone who submitted a question. We did get a couple that kind of doubled up, so I put them together and we got a couple of ones that were quite long, so I kind of paraphrased them as well. And we've got a couple that had multiple questions in them, so I've split some of them up and put them in, I guess, similar categories. So if you hear a question that you submitted that's only kind of half your question, don't worry, it's in there. I didn't forget you. I'm joined by the entire rest of the cast. If y'all want to say hi. Hi. Hello there. Well, that was weird. Normally we're like saying bye at the end. Yeah. yeah. Hi. Hi. (laughs) It's the evil universe, Cutie. We've all got goatees. Yeah. 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 So obviously this is going to be a little bit different today. This is going to be a little bit more freeform, chill, chatty. And we may as well just jump right into it because we have a bunch of questions to get through. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So many questions. So we're going to kick it off with our very first question from A. Nani Moose, which I'm just realizing now is That's anonymous. anonymous. <laughs> oh, oh, I did not realize that at all. <laughs> I saw it straight away. What is yeah. happening? <laughs> I was like, that's such a cute name. It's anonymous. I think this person has more than one they question do. in here. So we're going to return to Nani Moose. But their first question is, summarize the campaign in 10 words, no more, no less. All right, I'll go first because I've got one. I've got one too. I've got one. Me too. Uh, Mine is fun road trip killing gods, some tears, and too many snakes. Good. (laughs) Is that ten words? Probably. Yeah. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Count them yourself, folks. Mine was a fun romp around the world to save it thrice. A fun romp around the world to save it thrice. Yeah, that is ten. Technically, we save it four times. No, it is, that is three times. <laughs> Don't get big heads. Only three. <laughs> we only sa- really saved it time. three times. Oh, my God. Okay, so mine is, holy shit, what the fuck? <laughs> There's cows? <laughs> also, <laughs> what? Huh? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, so mine was, Nietzsche was wrong. Now he is right. We are sorry. <laughs> uh, for you philosophy buffs out there. Oh, God, I wish I thought that. Uh, mine was just uh, being who you are by being someone different, very gay. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Amazing. Wow. Perfect. So our next question comes from Jamie, who asks, was this originally where the campaign was meant to go? And I'm going to throw this one to Sammy. Hi, Jamie. <laughs> This campaign 
started as a fever dream one day where I wanted to play Dungeon World, but I wanted to justify having another campaign, so we just started. Nothing was planned at the start. Nothing. I mean, I guess if, in a meta sense, I guess I didn't expect to have all these loving listeners. That was unexpected. Um, but in a story sense, if you don't have a plan, the plan can't be broken. <laughs> <laughs> everything, everything that you hear in that episode zero, where we're introducing our characters and talking about our hooks and stuff, that is literally everything we had planned for that first session. Uh, and then we took a break for dinner and Sammy threw together the dam. There was also literally all new information to me. I got like three of the characters' names wrong. I call Krumora Kramara through that entire session because I just heard it. <laughs> you thought Cackle Cast was Kaku Cast? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought it was like a Japanese kind of inspired name. <laughs> Having said that, once the campaign got going, I know Sammy had like plans and hooks and stuff the same as. I guess, a more standard campaign. But they were more like rogue jigsaw pieces. Did that all get thrown out the window, though, with the whole original Baramos pact? Uh, I would say that no, it didn't, because if we're talking in jigsaw pieces, I didn't have very many things in the box yet at that point. So really, the heavy planning only started after you got that goal. Because I think, yeah, that solidified what our campaign was. Yeah. All I'd planned was that there was some sort of war between the gods. That was the extent of my knowledge. The more we played, the more we filled out the world, the more the lore came together. So the further the campaign goes on, the more... I wouldn't say predetermined stuff there was, but as the world filled in, there was more to kind of work with. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't necessarily planned. The law was more solidified. Yeah, but also just the world, you know, the events of the world. And we were able, because it's such an improv-heavy campaign, like, we were able to draw on stuff that we'd stated previously. The, the time didn't mean anything. Like, Lenny is a classic example, yeah. right? Like, Lenny, Tori made up Lenny, and then Sammy was the one who turned Lenny into actually a pivotal character in the story. But, like, Sammy didn't plan Lenny. Lenny just happened. <laughs> And that's 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 ninety percent of this campaign. Ninety yeah. percent just happened, and that is part of what Dungeon World is about: is this collaborative world building. You play to find out what happens. It's very different to D anD D in the sense that you don't have to plan out a whole campaign. It's not designed for you to have a whole story ready to go that your characters are just kind of going to inhabit. It's much more designed for you to jump into a character and then build out the world using that character rather than react to the world in that character. If that makes sense. Honestly, Sammy did a really good job in kind of corralling and containing the sheer chaotic energy that all of us had. Yeah. <laughs> There's a, um, I, I think it's Brendan Lee Mulligan who talks about DMing as a kind of judo, where you have to sort of reflect your player's chaotic energy. You can't stop it. It's always going to happen. So you just have to like reflect it back at them and like direct it into a, like a constructive and cohesive thing. And I think that's that's kind of queer engineers, except that Sammy is also very chaotic, um, possibly more chaotic than us. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> she she controls our chaotic energy by using her own chaotic energy. Yeah, it's true. She's the you call that chaotic. This is chaotic. <laughs> Boom. Exactly. Exactly. It's true, but Sammy's chaos is very deliberate. Mm. Like it seems like chaos, but actually, it's very. It's there's there's a reason behind a lot of it. It's someone mischievous. Mm. Exactly. Exactly. We have. A trickster goddess here. I was going to say, Sammy is a, a trickster spirit. <laughs> okay, well, this question, the next question actually leads on really well from this. 
from Eggwood from Twilight. What a name. That's a solid name. I laughed when I saw that name. I want you to know that I laughed out loud when I read that name. I was pre-reading the questions. I'm just imagining the entire Twilight series is the same except Edward is bald. Eggwood. I was just imagining an actual egg. Like, just rolling. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Alternatively, since we're a queer podcast, trans Edward. Yes. Nice. Anyway, Eggwood from Twilight asks... Fuck! <laughs> I'm sorry, I'd just like to circle back. So are you saying the feminine version of the name Edward is Eggwood? No, I'm saying <laughs> Edward pre-transition, pre-choosing a new name is Eggwood. Because she's an golly. egg. <laughs> this is question number three, folks. We're doing great. Yeah, we've been recording for 15 minutes and we've done <laughs> two questions. <laughs> Buckle up! Um... Edward from Twilight asks, how long have you been doing this Dungeon World thing, not just this specific campaign? Surprise, it basically is a specific campaign. Yeah, the answer to that is that, with the exception of Scarlet, none of us had played Dungeon World before. We had played uh, a campaign together in another Powered by the Apocalypse system called Masks, which Scarlet GM'd. And previously, before that, we played a D&D campaign GM'd by Jared with kind of a wider bunch of friends. So we've been playing together for a while, but yeah, none of us had played Dungeon World before except Scarlet. Yes, it was my first uh, system that I ever played in 2015. Wow, I didn't know it was your first system. I didn't know that either. I'd watched a bunch of actual plays and stuff. Like the first introduction was Roleplay Dark Heresy, which was a Dark Heresy actual play. But the first system I ever actually played was uh, Dungeon World. That's fantastic. I didn't know that. Thank God we had Scarlet for guidance. (laughs) Yeah, it's true. Yeah, we'll play rules light for a lot of it. Mm -hmm. Next question. (laughs) Uh, Next question, which uh, circles back to kind of what we're already talking about from Robin Engdahl. For Sammy, how much do you plan ahead as a GM and how much background world building did you prepare beforehand? Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I do like the analogy of the jigsaw box because I do just, I come up with like, gosh, this would be really fun if this happened sometime, but I don't know where it's going to sit. So I'll just leave that floating for like, you know, a month, three months, two years, something like that until it, until it becomes relevant. Um, although sometimes I will fix around bigger structures. Like, I mean, essentially the whole going to find death's abode and everything was a more structured thing. Although if you think about it, y'all could have gotten there a lot quicker because the first thing you do is you go back and you pick up Lenny. And if anyone had thought to see where Lenny pointed at that point, like you had no prompt to, but if anyone had done it, you would have been straight there. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That's the thing, right? Like, you had that planned, but it's not like you directed us to it. Like, it was just sitting there. <laughs> and then when we did find it out, we are all fucking kicking ourselves. For not having done this obvious thing. Yeah, it's a Chekhov's dagger. <laughs> exactly. Yep. To, to understand the extent to which Sammy doesn't really prep things, like, ahead of time, when Baramos is uh, first introduced, he threatens Jolene with a big fireball. Now, <laughs> within the lore of the world, that is meaningless because he's... 
I mean, and then obviously that's counteracted again because, you know, he has special access and whatever. But like, Baramos can't, you can't directly attack people between the barrier. But the reason that happens is because the barrier didn't exist then. (laughs) (laughs) Samuel came up with the barrier idea after that whole thing. And I think that goes back to what we were saying before about how that really kind of set the world off. Mm. And I think it was also where we kind of found our feet in a lot of ways, like after the kind of whole Tomb of Busker, that whole bit. Definitely. I think we kind of knew what our characters were about at that point, how they'd react to things and also how they reacted to each other. But more on that later. A lot of my planning time, I guess, did go then to one, plugging those holes. (laughs) (laughs) And two, honestly, trying to come up with situations where I didn't know what would happen, I guess, sometimes was, was a big thing. Like situations where I felt like you would have multiple meaningful options or that I would be able to work with was a lot of the preparation. A lot of that would happen literally, though, before each session, Mm. sort of like just worrying about what happens in the next two or three hour block. And then you kind of get ahead sometimes because then something doesn't happen or you don't get as far as you thought. And then you've actually then got that thing you planned for that session that you can then unleash in like two or three sessions. And then as you keep doing that, your toolbox fills and fills. And before you know it, you feel like you actually do have a planned campaign. There were some sessions towards the end where I would have to spend a long time working out what exactly was going on. There were a few big challenges. Uh, The Obsidian Palace was... (laughs) Uh, a curveball. <laughs> <laughs> the Obsidian Palace caused Sammy so much pain. I was stressed. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> you, you just had this throwaway comment and we're like, we're going there. We're yeah, going. We're yeah. going. Oh, like, why? But it's really good that we did in the end because we learned something earth shattering about the law, you know? I mean, literally earth shattering. Was the world butthole there beforehand? <laughs> Oh, did, did there have to be something in the Obsidian Palace? Was it just like a like an ominous building, or did was the butthole existing when we when you knew about it? It was just an ominous building. <laughs> so originally, the idea was kind of that there would be some sort of anchor for a really evil god there, but then that just didn't fit with what we had. So then my next idea was that essentially nothing would be there, and that something had been stolen or moved or destroyed there, um, and that the temple was essentially like a, a farce. Um, but then the problem was it just didn't know how to make it come to a point and so i i think i guess riffing off the idea of being nothing there i got to the most extreme version of nothing which is nothingness so. are you telling me are you telling our faithful listeners that in fact the obsidian palace is a butt plug yeah i quit i'm leaving <laughs> i'm not doing it Bye, everyone. Been a good run. Okay. Bye. (laughs) So our next question, we got two kind of similar ones. So the first one was from Paige, who asks, for everyone, what made you pick the class for each of your characters? And the second question from someone who didn't leave a name, what was the inspiration behind your characters and did that change over the campaign? Who wants to start? I've got a pair. Yeah, I've got a Actually, you can start. Okay. For me, there was never any question that I was going to play a druid because I'm a druid connoisseur. I sample the druid class in everything that I play because I'm a big animal nerd, I guess. For Nim, though, like a lot of the characters who I'd played previously had been quite 
nice and shy. So I really wanted to give playing a more assertive character a go. But literally my only inspiration when I very, very first started thinking of Nim was Grumpy Druid. That's literally it. That's all I had. (laughs) And the painted lady from Avatar, right? Yeah. And then as I started thinking about it a bit more, because as the Druid class, you pick a a homeland and you can be any creature from that homeland. So in Dungeon World, a Druid can shapeshift an unlimited number of times, but your choice of creature is limited to kind of where you're familiar with, unless you study more. So I chose the river because I just thought that was interesting. Um, had a nice mix of Bears. land and water and sky. And that immediately made me think of the painted lady from Avatar The Last Airbender. And Katara, who's very kind of righteous and full of, you know, a sense of justice and stuff. And then the more I played Nim, the more she actually became like Korra from the from the second Avatar series, who's very like explosive and rebellious and uh, and gay. Yeah. <laughs> so that was... That was Nim uh, at the beginning. And then the more we played, Nim really became an exercise in unapologetically taking up space and being loud and, you know, reveling in the strength of her body and the fact she can change into things and being confident in her abilities, which, you know, I think a lot of people struggle with and I certainly did. So, yeah, Nim was, Nim was, Nim means a lot to me (laughs) as uh, someone I got to inhabit for a little while. yeah. Um, and I guess I'll, I'll go next. Uh, and as, as Ursula is to druids, I am to wizards. <laughs> I, am, I am an arcane connoisseur. I mean, you know, going back to what I was saying earlier, my first RPG experience, Dungeon World, my first character was a wizard. And so it was kind of going back a little bit to that, I guess, was why I picked uh, wizard. And also because I know this, I know the rest of the cast well enough to know that none of them would pit make a smart character. <laughs> <laughs> I know that all of you would make dipshits, and I just had to make a character who um, had some insight into how the world functioned. I hate that you were correct. Guilty <laughs> as charged. It's funny, because I, te- I was talking to a friend of mine, um, someone, I, someone I played D&D with, who actually we met through playing Dungeon World, and we were talking about that and how like I always end up playing the kind of either the sort of sensible, yes, I'm the driving, you know, not the driving force, but, you know, I'm going to be the, okay, well, let's make sure we know how everything's working or just completely off the walls. Let's fuck everything up. You're the driver of the van. Yeah. Whether I'm driving it to the shops or into a river, who knows? I was going to say, you know how to drive. Yeah. It just depends what you do with it. Yeah. Um, but I think, so Cremora is kind of a combination, I guess, of a couple of character ideas and archetypes that I really wanted to play and explore more, but I just never got the opportunity. So one was kind of drawing on the whole family connection, that whole sort of thing was a tiefling sorcerer in the aforementioned D&D game that we all played together, tiefling sorcerer named Ashes. And the other one was a character idea I had for a wizard who went to like magic school for adventuring, because I found that idea so funny, (laughs) like of someone getting a degree in how to adventure and just being so useless in like actual practice like having all the theory but not knowing how to really apply any of it because they've never had any practical experience and i just thought that was really interesting so like real life yeah exactly it's it's (laughs) you have all this theory all this theory but you don't then you have to kind of learn how to apply it and i think as the campaign went on cremora became more and more um defined i guess by her relationship with her past and her experiences and really she became an allegory for trauma recovery Uh, which is not something I ever thought was going to happen and not something I planned for. Um, 
but is something that I'm I I think I hope I did an okay job with and yeah that that's me that's Kamora more on theory being tested in practice uh in season two maybe juicy teaser anyway who's next all right I'll do I'll I'll go next then Okay, so what made me pick the rogue class for each for my character? Um, that's actually kind of tied into the inspiration behind Jolene. Partially at the beginning, uh, I came up with her name uh, like after reading stuff online and realizing that Dolly Parsons Jolene could actually be, you know, written as a Eldritch Horror or something like that. So I went like, okay, yeah, I'm going to create a character called Jolene. And maybe they'll be an Eldritch Horror, or maybe they'll just be a dipshit. Turns out they were a dipshit. <laughs> but the actual personality behind it and why I chose for the Jolene to be a halfling and for them to be a rogue is actually my sibling, my younger sibling in particular. We, we have like a good relationship. And despite all that, they're still a little bit of a shit. So... I figured to create a small, kind of likable creature who will steal your socks and your fish <laughs> and then, like, be absolutely unapologetic about it, but also be just as endearing that you just can't say no to them. And then couple that with the fact that I min-maxed my, <laughs> my rogue to the point where it was doing so much damage. I felt like, you know what? That's great. I want to have a character that's, like, stupidly overpowered, wants as much as she can carry, who just happens to be trans, and just remind me so much of my little sibling. So yeah, it was that. Jolene was an absolute force in our campaign. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know how to convey to people just the difference in magnitude of damage that Jolene could do compared to the rest of the characters, despite the fact that, you know, we had a, a wizard, you know, connected to the, the most powerful source of anything in the world and as someone who was made up of the collective experience of dozens if not hundreds of people and someone who you know had this extremely rare ability to shapeshift and stuff and yet it was Jolene the little unassuming thief who could just one shot anything that we came across for perspective, Jolene would do about three to four times as much damage as Nim could. Yep. Did you guys do the maths on that? Yeah. Well, I deliberately didn't spec into damage for both narrative and balance reasons mm. <laughs> because of Jolene. Having the most experience with Dungeon World, I can categorically say that if we'd tried, we had the basis to make the most broken party possible. Like, druids have their whole thing. Like, they have a bunch of really incredible stuff that they can do. Obviously, thieves, yeah, like, Jolene is just... This is a system where dragons have 12 hit points. Um, Ow. You know, and then... But then it's the, the fictional aspects that make them dangerous. And jo Jolene could feasibly just kill a dragon by herself. Just one-shot him. With some lucky shots, yes. In the final fight, you all literally bullied me into, like, tripling Baramos's health. Yeah. It was a three-phase fight. Also, you had to literally eject Jolene away from the fight. Yeah. Oh, against Dan. Against yeah. Dan. Yeah. I was right. <laughs> uh, how do you easily defeat a small child with a knife? You just toss them real far. Yeet. You yeet them. Yeah. <laughs> how about Signana and Patsy? 
Oh, yeah. So I guess the class decision, I had sort of decided on Bard because I, I guess I, I knew I was going to do a very arrogant, boisterous character. And I guess it sort of falls into the inspiration. So the actual character inspiration comes from a previous villain I had used in aforementioned D&D campaign. God, fuck, I hate it. Everyone just hated this character, like viscerally. Which is which is a good time. Uh, it's good when you can make people absolutely despise something. And it took a while for them to like Signana because of that carryover relationship. <laughs> uh, but in true. terms of like the inspirations behind that character, that personality, that voice, it was like all the childhood sort of narcissist characters. So you've got like the main two were Captain Quark from the Ratchet and Clank series. And uh, Lord Farquaad. Yes. yes! <laughs> um, so sort of those two where you had like undeserved confidence and then just the like, I don't know, like posh, but in a weird way. I think that was just like the thing with Signana and the voice itself was inspired by, there was an old spice ad, the man your man could smell like. Oh my God, really? That's, that's entirely, the entire voice of that comes from just an impression of that. It's like, look at your man, now back to me, now back to your man, now back to me. Sadly, he's not me, but he could smell like he's me. I can't believe <laughs> I never made that connection. <laughs> So that is entirely what that voice is. As for Patsy, Patsy was a very reactional character to losing Signana. I knew like I had to have a backup plan. I sort of did have the idea of like, what if Barry just brings someone back from the dead and just be so easy to tie them in? Because I think if I had a character that was anyone else in the actual world, they wouldn't have fit as well with the narrative. They'd just be like, oh, plop in here. I guess I'll join your journey and pact and stuff. Um, so I needed someone that had stakes. So that's why I guess like I had created, that was the inspiration for a lot of Patsy. But we get deeper in uh, later questions about that. Mm. Um, Barbarian was just a choice because I knew, I knew I wanted, because we had like like a druid and a wizard so very close up and then like a very sneaky person. So I was like, I just want someone that's just, just going to break through the wall. That's 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 their kit. Um, so that's why I decided on Barbarian. Kool-Aid man. <laughs> yeah. And the voice was Patsy was from a British comedy show called uh, The Mighty Boosh. And they had a character called the Spirit of Jazz um, that had that whole that Patsy voice. <laughs> and so that's where I got that originally. And yeah, that was, that was all the little inspirations. You're so right about like no one else being able to fit into the campaign. Like, yeah. I love I love that Baramos, in all his immortal arrogance, all his humanity stripped away, was just like, oh, you lost someone here. Have an, uh, I'll buy you another puppy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Here's one I made earlier. He basically just did that. Yeah. yeah. Yes, well, our next questions are also about Signana. Mm-hmm. Um, so from Scarlet, not our Scarlet, 1T, asks, at what point was it decided that Signana was a swan? Um, that was from a get-go thing. So, yep. uh, I think they had pitched it to Sammy, but the, like, the character idea for, like, a character that was a swan turned into an elf or, like, any humanoid character came from, it was just something, like, me and my partner have a game where we try to just make up stories randomly. And one of the things we're doing is just picking, like, I had, I had a whole bunch of uh, paint, like, pictures along my wall. And one of them was this painting of, like, this serene lake with two swans. And so I turned a, made a story on the spot about a person that was 
turned into a humanoid being by a crazed wizard. And that's how Signana came to be. So that's how Signana was a swan. It was, yeah, off that little narrative. I was like, you know what? I want to turn that into a character. And then QD came along and I was like, yes, this is the perfect time. This is the right amount of zany to fit into <laughs> what, whatever setting we're doing. So, yeah. And from that, we also got Sapio Capricast yep. yep. and Vern Capricast. Oh, yeah. That Sammy adapted really well to my dumb, dumb concept. I forget that Vern's last name is Capricast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you just reminded me just then. They probably don't talk about it too often. <laughs> Jared, can you just, because I know this and I hate it, can you just explain to the to the listeners who might not be aware in brief how that ties into Signana's name? Oh, so the genus name for swans is Signini. And I was like, okay, I want to change that up. And I was like, why don't I do Signana? Because it, it sounds a bit funny. It sounds like banana. <laughs> So it's literally just, just yeah, it's like the genus name for swans and banana. Thank you. And that's that's the character. That's the that's the crazy zany uh, character. Yeah. And that's why Sapio is called Sapio because Sapio is the genus name. Yeah, because sapiens. Vanala is the. Vanala is the genus name for the common kind, green snake. Yeah. <laughs> common green snake, and then obviously that became Vern when they came out as non-binary. Blue asks, will we see any more of Signana? No. Nah. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, that was quick. On to the next question. Signana's soul was magically destroyed. He's gone. Yeah. He still has a body. (laughs) Yeah, that's rotting under the ground. Yeah, but we're not going to weekend at Signana's. Like, (laughs) just grabbing his jaw. Hello, I'm Signana. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, jeez. Oh. Yeah, Signana's gone. Signana's mm. not coming back. Yep. Um, we're sorry, but also we didn't want to be a campaign where everything just worked out. Yeah. Sometimes when people are dead, they're, they're gone. Yeah. And that's what happens with war and conflict. Anyway, um, Emma asks, what do you think it'd be like if Signana and Patsy ever met each other? Oh, I think Jared would need some lozenges. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There'd just be so much confusion. I think both of them would be able to convince the other of the dumbest shit. You know what? I can see that. Because both of them are like naive and gullible in their own way. And it, like, because it's like Signana hasn't experienced too much of the world. So other than their pre-held worldview that all elves were swans for a while, <laughs> there wasn't too much else that like, like other people could shape that. Um, and then Patsy being this amalgamation, but also unsure of themselves I think both would have just convinced the other of the dumbest thing and that would have just led to so much confusion. So, like, imagine the Signana Jolene or the Patsy Jolene kind of partnership shenanigans, but dialed up to 1200. Yeah. And oops, old Jared. (laughs) (laughs) So wait, so you think they'd like each other? Patsy likes everyone. Yeah. Yeah, Patsy's pretty kind and, like, I think, like, if Signana had come back... Signana would have been snarky about, like, oh, this is the person you got to replace me with. Like, there would have been that jealousy side. So I think there would have been that aspect. Like, if it was a thing of, like, all of them existed from the start, mm. then I think they'd get along. But I think if it was, like, a Signana return scenario, I think it would have been, like, Signana would have had ill will sort of to Patsy, like, jealousy. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Okay, this one's for you and me, Scarlett, from Ooh. Lissa, who asks, how much of Nim and Cremora's relationship was discussed off air and how much would you say developed spontaneously? Now, the answer to this question is going to be very different between the two of us because my answer is, 
Uh, I didn't know that Nim liked Cremora until the moment she died. Um, <laughs> a little late. Yeah. A little late, yeah. you might say. I, I'm, I'm fond of making interesting and bad character choices. So I figured as basically as soon as Nim was kind of conceptually introduced and we had those, you know, you know, the, the grumpy druid kind of thing. I thought it'd be really interesting for my character, who is a very timid, you know, from the start, I knew it was going to be quite a sort of timid inexperience to have just this massive, like, schoolgirl crush kind of thing, right? On, on this character who doesn't want to give her the time of day. <laughs> and I thought it sort of developed out of that, I think, throughout the story. And then obviously when uh, Cremora died, exploring how that changed everything. Well, yeah, it was almost, it, it almost went like the unrequiredness of it kind of flipped. Mm. Like for Nim, it was like she hadn't, well, it's not that she paid attention to Cremora because Nim found Cremora intriguing. Initially, she didn't give a shit about any of them. They were just there to help her achieve her goal. So, like, Nim was originally very righteous and, you know, wanting to lay out justice, but in a, in a very kind of broad sense. Like, she didn't care about individual people. Mm. And obviously by the end of the campaign, she was all about individual people. But Cremora was the first person who Nim had encountered up to that point who genuinely didn't want anything from her. Like, Jolene and Signana were obviously there for the money, and Nim didn't dislike them for that. Like, she felt like she understood them. Whereas Cremora, like, from the get-go, Nim found... Well, not from the get-go, but from the point when the dam was destroyed, Nim began to find Cremora very intriguing. Mm -hmm. Initially, she didn't trust her because it was like, well, what do you want? There's got to be some angle here. And then it very, very quickly became apparent that Cremora was just nice. (laughs) Yeah. And Nim was completely, like, taken aback by that. But I think we made, like, one or two little jokes about it very offhand. Yeah. Um, because I think we kind of discussed that Cremora had a bit of a crush on Nim, but, like, I wasn't really doing anything with that. Yeah, no, I, I wasn't either. Like, it was just, it was something I was aware of in my roleplay, but it wasn't something that I was acting on. Yeah, exactly. But then the whole thing at the Tomb of Baska happened, and I am such a sucker for love stories. But I also love it when there's, like, disaster and yearning and things aren't easy and la-da-da. So basically, like... It's fine, Ursula, you can just say that you're gay, it's fine. Yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> so it was it was when Cremora died, you know, suddenly this thing where I was like, would be interesting to explore Nim coming to have an affection for Cremora as someone who has shown that she genuinely cares with no ulterior mo- motive. Like, that suddenly had to be accelerated a hundredfold because I didn't know if Cremora was going to come back. Yeah. None of us did. So it was, yeah, it wasn't until the moment that Nim realizes she's about to lose Cremora and I realized that Nim is about to lose Cremora that I was like, okay, which is like, what is the most tragic disaster lesbian move I can pull in this moment? And that is to have Nim fall completely head over heels in love in the moment that her crush dies. And, And that informed Nim's actions pretty much for the rest of that arc, particularly choosing to bring her back, which was ultimately a selfish thing, right? Because, yeah. again, Nim Nim's perspective on this relationship was very much like, I've never met someone who just is nice for the sake of being nice, and I like it. You know, because obviously she grew up in this village and stuff, but she was this protege, and Pip, while being a mother figure to her, was still wanted something from her, right? And that was to not be the only druid. 
Because Pip was lonely, but that made Nim lonely. I don't know. I'm rambling. Yeah. <laughs> You've got us going about character choices and... Um... I, uh, yeah. and But then once we'd established that, we discussed quite a lot about their relationship yeah. in terms of there was like a boundary to navigate there about like, well, what are you comfortable role playing? Stuff like that. Or just like, where do you want this to go for your character kind of thing? I think the only time you ever really took me off guard was when Cremora, like, straight up was like, I can't pursue this right now when they're at the Oasis. Mm. And I was like, whoa, okay. Yeah, I think Cremora sort of struggled with her sense of self, Mm. which is partially why she was so selfless and just wanted to do things for other people because she hadn't, she'd never been in a position where she'd been able to do things for herself. And so having, being post Thin Red Line, I think, I, I just wanted Cremora to kind of claw back a bit of that and just say, like, no, like, I am going to take the time to make decisions for myself and I'm going to examine who I am and how I feel and then I'll get back to you. Mm. Oh, no, not that moment. The one, um, I think it was pre-Thin Red Line. Oh, which was just like, I straight up, I cannot do this right now. And Nim was like, oh, you've changed. Oh, yes, that, that, yes. No, I know the one you're talking about. Um, oh, yeah, that was just Kamora being edgy. Yeah. Um, and that was just me wanting to make you sad. Oh, I was sad. I was sad. <laughs> I was like... Did we just break up? Did Scarlet just break up with me? You like fire audacity? <laughs> Ursula likes love stories. I'm I like angst and I like I like a bit of edge in my in my love stories, I think. So, you know, I like I like them to be a little angsty. So uh, I wanted to I wanted that represented there. <laughs> it was perfect. It was a really good moment. Look, there's gonna be hurt comfort in your uh fanfic. <laughs> I've written some really edgy Namora stuff. Um, uh, maybe released on Patreon at some point. <laughs> Tell me more. Oh, you've read it. You've seen it. Oh, I have. I have. That's right. I think you're. Yeah, I think I showed it to Sammy, and she said, "Hey, Scarlet, what the fuck?" <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that's enough. That's enough from us about this fictional relationship. On to the next question about the fictional relationship. Courtney, a.k.a. Ashantiana, says, Congrats, Cremora and Nim. Wait, Cremora did the whole expansion thing, right? Yes. Yes. <laughs> we use the power of that which falls to make an ever-expanding afterlife. Next question. Yes, that was like the whole thing. Everyone did that together. Next. Catherine asks, Next Pride Month, can there be a mini special that's just Nim and Cremora's wedding? That would be so cute. Now, Catherine, this would be an incredibly cute thing to do. However... As someone who has dipped her toes in planning a real-life wedding, you know, on and off over the last couple of years, the prospect of planning an imaginary (laughs) wedding uh, isn't really my idea of fun. So I'm gonna I'm gonna step I want to step in here and I just want to say I don't think either of them really understand what a wedding is. Yeah. Uh, like Cremora has like a super specific high ceremonial from her upbringing and like you know cultural stuff and Nim which Nim would hate. Exactly. So they just I think they just they have they exchange rings or well Cremora gives Nim a ring and then Nim makes Cremora the ring from all the stuff. Yes that's a juicy tidbit. I thought about this after Cremora gave Nim the ring like what would be Nim's ring. I think she'd make it herself out of like stuff that she finds on her travels and she crushes it down into a black diamond with green flecks. Um, and I think they're just, then they're just married and they just decide that they're married and that's fine. They don't need a wedding or anyone to sign off. Like, fuck it. That's, that's my word on that. I agree it would be incredibly adorable. Um, but that's it. We've, that's our final word on that. Next question. (laughs) Whatever you want Nim and Cremora's wedding to look like, that's what it looks like. Uh, next question is for Jolene and then kind of for everyone. 
from Rose Mays, who asks, what does Jolene Jolene do after the final battle and do the group keep in touch? Um, we kind of touched on this in the 100th episode, I think. Mm. Basically, Jolene Jolene becomes a traveling apothecary, a la obscure anime Mushishi. Basically, she just goes around and like um, helps people out, especially if they're sick or it doesn't even have to be people. It could be creatures, could be ghosts, could be cows. I feel like she like eventually does go back home. And once she picks up Patsy, baby Patsy, Pat's pet baby, pet baby. <laughs> so anyway, um, she'll probably spend a lot of her time taking care of him. And as for whether or not the group keeps in touch, uh, again, also gently touched on, I think later on in their life. Yeah. I mean, my feeling is that they definitely keep in touch. I don't think you can go through something like that together and not be invested in each other's lives. It doesn't mean they live together or spend all their time together. I certainly think Nim and Cremora seem to spend most of their life traveling, which I can imagine makes sense, you know, not wanting to settle down in any one place after going through what they've been through. And, you know, Cremora has magic, so, like, Cremora can probably magically send a message to Jolene Jolene. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's true. Speaking of Jolene and the Jolene homestead, uh, from Brumpo's biggest fan, is Brumpo a good boy, and what is Brumpo's deep lore story? Please explain. No, Brumpo is a war criminal. <laughs> <laughs> wow. No, Brumpo is a good boy. So with 100% accuracy, I would like to say that this question was submitted by Tori's sibling. Yeah, yep. 100%. The whole time you were describing your inspiration, all I could think is, but your sibling's more like Brumpo than my <laughs> um, That's what they seem on the outside, okay? You don't live with them. Um, so is Brumpo a good boy? Yeah, most of the time. What is Brumpo's deep lore story? Well. I had a line that the dog couldn't die. Yes. And so we had to respect that in strange and unusual ways. (laughs) Brumpo remains unharmed. (laughs) I love that so much. I just love the increasingly improbable survival of Brumpo. (laughs) Yep. So we know Brumpo has confronted death before. I suppose one possibility is that Brumpo was made into some sort of agent at that point in time, before that was a regular dog, before he ate all the rocks and met death. Otherwise, there is a chance that it was like an actual person who was a warlock who then got turned into a dog and has forgotten much of their warlock uh, history due to having the brain of a dog. I actually like that idea. It's definitely one of those two. There was a, um, I think one of our Patreon bonus Story Cube episodes, there's a third alternative, a non-canonical third alternative posed again about Brompo's origins, which I think are very eldritch from memory. Oh, Brompo is like drawn into existence by a dark wizard. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's the one. Okay, so three possibilities. Drawn into existence by dark wizard, turned into a powerful sorcerer by death, or was already a warlock, accidentally turned self into dog. <laughs> Pick your favourite. Yeah. I like to think that it's just a regular dog, but like through sheer energy of Labradorness. Or no, wait, it wasn't a Labrador. It was a. I thought it was a collie. It was a collie, yeah. But through sheer energy of a collie, it just doesn't die. <laughs> 
Speaking of animals, Emma asks, did the revolution ever reach Molten Gorge? I'm leaving this space wide open because one day we are going to play a little mini session thing showing how the revolution went. So I want to leave this one as a blank check. I'm sorry to say. <laughs> but they keep moving. Um, and one thing I'll tell you. Haha, <laughs> they keep uh, moving. <laughs> <laughs> number one enemy of the revolution is Pelon. That's just, that's all I know. Good. Pelon can get fucked. Xanafia <laughs> <laughs> or Xanafia asks, do the two queer buccaneers get together in the end? So it was... A triad that was broken. So I assume they're referring to Eagle Eye and Dog Droppings. Well, are they referring to Dog Droppings and Cat Claws? Because Eagle Eye is the one who had the secret kid. Yeah, but but Cat Claws was with, like, so there were originally three of them. Oh, right. And it split at Eagle Eye and Dog Dropping. So I think they're asking... Do Eagle Eye and Dog Dropping get back together and do they, you know, reform the triad? Uh, I definitely think the triad reforms, but I think the whole thing is incredibly sketchy for the rest of time. I don't think they ever really find stability due to the fact that they are all pirates. (laughs) (laughs) But Jakak has three or more loving parents, and that's what really matters. (laughs) Sammy isn't capable of writing a a functional relationship. (laughs) Apparently. (laughs) It has to be dysfunctional due to chaos. Yeah. So speaking of the queer buccaneers, we have another combo question. Ash, who asks, who is your favourite NPC from the campaign? And Elsim, who asks, who's your favourite NPC and why is it the entirety of the queer buccaneers? I genuinely love the queer buccaneers with all my heart. So that's funny because I genuinely hate them with all of mine. Me too! <laughs> why would Sammy play one chaotic character when she can play five at once? Six if you're including Jakak. I'm going to be honest, they're impossible to keep track of the strike fear in my heart. And that previous question about, like, which of them got with which, I literally had forgotten the configuration of their relationships completely. It had left my brain. Sammy, Sammy, Sammy. <laughs> Cat Claws is dating Eagle Eye and Dog Droppings, who used to date each other but now lo- no longer do because Eagle Eye has a secret kid called Jakak who's living in the hole that everyone but Old Smokey knows about. Ace Shot, who is kind of a fourth parent to Jakak, but also shields his existence from Old Smokey, who is the captain and is very esoteric. This sounds like an episode of Riverdale. What's going on? (laughs) Old Smokey is also a salamander, which we forgot consistently throughout the campaign. Oh my god, Every time we refer to them as having a beard, (laughs) they can't have a beard. They're a lizard. I like to imagine it's just glued on. What about bearded dragons? Checkmate. (laughs) I, you know what? You're right. Genuinely, though, my favourite NPC is Samira. That tracks. Yeah. That tracks. I love her. She's just Sammy's most unapologetically bratty self, and I'm in love with her. Just the worst incarnation of me. (laughs) And I love you, so... Aww. 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 I really liked Cassandra. I thought she was a really interesting character, like, as an exploration of, like, how people interact with and experience faith, and how people react when their faith changes, um, and when they lose faith. Uh, I thought that was really interesting. Uh, personally, I liked Jolene's dad. Romeo. Yeah, Romeo, namely because it was fun to have Jolene bounce off an embarrassing dad. (laughs) And also, like, if you really think about it, he does genuinely 
love Jolene because he literally flies to the end of ends of the world for her. Oh, wait, I take it back. My favorite NPC is Brumpo. Brumpo. <laughs> <laughs> trying to think of. Uh... I know my least favorite. <laughs> I, I think that comes up with like a, there's another one that's like a mistake we rectify. So we'll get to that. <laughs> uh, no, but I think oh, when I said that, I had an actually had an idea who my favorite was, and I lost it. Do you want me to start listing characters? Oh, we're gonna be here all day. <laughs> Sapio, Quennel, Vern, Boris. Quenel. It was Quennel. It was such a, like, a dynamic voice that just really played off well with the kinds of characters with Nim and Patsy. And because that really started out like the Nim and Patsy journey. And I think like having Quennel there as being the third piece and sort of where you had like dumb overconfident, dumb with this shit, and then someone who's scared shitless. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Like, I think I I loved Quennel just... Like everything they said was just, or it, like it was just like we want to protect, but also bully. Yeah, in this household, Quennel gets quoted quite a lot. <laughs> Mine. Wait, do I get one? You get one. I'm going to combine this with another question from Paige, who says, "For Sammy, who is your favorite NPC to portray? So, who's your favorite, and who was your favorite to portray?" <sighs> My favourite to portray was actually Quennel. Quennel was definitely high on my list when I was trying to decide who my favourite QD character was. And yeah, I just enjoyed being able to do that silly little voice. Uh, all the voices are gone at the moment. I'm not going to be trying to do any any old QD stuff at the moment. It's like kind of locked away right now. So <laughs> sorry, I'd love to do a, a Quennel impression, but ooh, it's just not going to happen. See, it's not it's nothing. <laughs> it, was, it was much smaller. And I'm bit, very small. I'm very small. And I have no money, so you can imagine the stress I am under. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Sammy, Sammy is the opposite of Jared. Jared is able to pinpoint and recall and re-perform the voices quite well. <laughs> Sammy, between recording sessions, loses them all and has to relearn them every single time. <laughs> and this time it's been way too long. I've lost every single voice. Um, so my favourite to portray was Quennel. It was a lot of fun, just a silly, fun character who managed to also have an impact on the campaign and had like a nice sort of um, Shakespearean delayed introduction where we learn a little about them before we ever really have any idea what their deal is. <laughs> My favorite is Baramos. Big, big Barry fan. Uh, fun character. I always viewed Baramos as a secret kind of hero who just by his nature would always be at the risk of doing the wrong thing, but is ultimately aligned with the party. And I think that that comes across and it, it was always fun to have the party sort of slowly realize like, hey, we can kind of trust this guy. Like, this guy's actually kind of helped us, but then at the same time... Until uh, we couldn't. (laughs) Yeah, but then at the same time, always ready to just dump him into a fucking vat of lava. (laughs) Um, Especially, especially Patsy, who had a kind of different relationship to Baramos than everyone else. And Jolene, who never trusted him. Hmm. That's true. Jolene was right from the start. Yeah. So, um, I'm a big... Big Barry fan. Yeah. I'm going to record a cover of Billie Eilish's Bad Guy in the Baramos voice. You can do the Baramos voice. You never lost that. Yeah. <laughs> I am Baramos of the fourth circle. I'm the bad guy. 
Duh. <laughs> it worked out so well because we like I think everyone but Julie and for us it was like okay like sure it's a demon but we're like we subvert things here at QD like we didn't think like yeah. the demon in the room was actually going to be the big bad and he was so lovable by the end and he wasn't the big bad for the majority of the story like yeah. really 99% yeah. I mean of it. like but like genuinely he only kind of flipped right at the end yeah because absolute power corrupts absolutely, y'all. We learnt that from the Chocolatier Supreme. We did indeed. Speaking <laughs> oh, of Barry. Oh, I forgot about the Chocolatier Supreme. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, can I change yeah. my answer? <laughs> it's the Chocolatier Supreme. That's my favourite character. <laughs> <laughs> I tried to change the subject before y'all could remember the Chocolatier Supreme and it did not work, folks. It did not work. <laughs> Speaking of Barry. Kind of from Gavin, was the original concept for Patsy to be a jumble of separate souls, or was that something Sammy came up with as the GM? Um, as I would said earlier, that Patsy was a very reactionary character, so all I had at that point was that like it was a soul brought back and they don't remember anything about who they were, and it was going to be like a slow, weird, like, memento kind of thing, uh, where things sort of slowly started to get pieced together. But as the campaign progressed, like things slowly stopped making sense just because I was really inconsistent with Patsy time. And Sammy reacted with that. And if you want to continue, Sammy. Yeah, exactly. It's like the whole idea was kind of that we would learn more about the situation that led to Patsy sacrificing his soul, uh, which related to Hip and Gale. But the pieces just never came up. And I think it always would have been a really hard thing to bring together in a satisfying way. Mm. But I do think that the utter bullshit we were coming up with in the Patsy times uh, certainly made that even harder. And so then by the end, that whole part of the story almost just becomes this really enigmatic, like bizarro backstory where we can only kind of get glimpses of what happened, which I think is, I think is really fun because we, you know, in a way we never really get closure on what actually caused, I guess, the core of Patsy to lose his soul, which I guess we could say here, Jared. Um, yeah, I guess the core of, I don't know if there was a... What actually made Patsy, like the original Patsy give up his soul, like the one who's most core to Patsy. Oh, I didn't even think of, I'd never thought that one thing was particularly like Patsy Patsy Mm. as like a driving force. I think they all sort of came together in a way there may have been like a prevailing attitude maybe yeah i never actually thought too deeply um about that it was more like i guess once we had come to it it was more the thing of like whoever they were was some amalgamation but who are they are now and it sort of became for me like after that point once we came up with the amalgamation of souls it became more about patsy's journey of the campaign mm. like through the campaign and like that was what became defining for the character over backstory and other aspects of that he was a really fantastic counterpart to Cremora in that way and to a lesser extent Nim and Jolene who were all much more defined by their past but especially Cremora you know who kind of is really struggling to break away from it and then ultimately for Patsy like instead of trying to make all the pieces make sense and fit together it was like okay well let's give them a reason not to make sense Mm. you know and the past doesn't actually matter what the reason that Patsy or the various parts that made up Patsy like whatever deal they made with Baramos it didn't matter in the Mm, end yeah I think that's more important like I guess the part of that is more important to Patsy's character is like I guess in the face of all that damnation is the soul really salvageable 
And like, I guess, can that goodness just come from a place of people would say unequivocally evil or in some ways selfish? And yeah, I guess it's sort of that weird in between of like, we don't know, but it worked for Patsy. Yeah. <laughs> Our next question has already been answered in the epilogue, but I'm going to read it out anyway, because I don't want to skip over anyone. Nikayla asks, how will Patsy be reunited and who will raise him? Um, so obviously... <laughs> He's reunited because Jolene goes looking for him and then steals him. Which is normal for her. That was so yeah. perfect. Jolene stole my baby. <laughs> yeah. Jolene stole my baby. But I guess I left it in here because I don't know, do Jared or Tori, do you have anything, I guess, to add to that? I I don't know. Yeah. I, I wonder if this, whether we want to keep this a bit like... Unknown? Unknown for... Mm. I don't know fully how... I, like, I don't think we've really chatted about where Patsy will go from there or, like, the timescale we're working with fully, but, like, who knows what will come of Patsy, but I think that'd be kind of a, a good mystery to leave for whatever potential it has. Mm. Um, I think we at least have the beginnings of it through the epilogue. Yeah, personally, I think that Jolene initially starts off thinking, like, hmm, I think this is Patsy, but then as the baby that she stole grows up, she'll probably let go of the whole, I'll find my friend one more time. And she will probably do her best not to mold the baby that she got into like a semblance of Patsy or what she remembered Patsy to be like. Even so, she'll still raise the baby and stuff. But I think she briefly touched on it with the whole naming thing. Like she doesn't straight up name the baby Patsy, despite the fact that a, it reminds her of him, and also B, it definitely sounds like him. <laughs> well, yeah, our next question from Medora Rose is, what is the baby's name in the end? Um, I don't think I can answer that for, like, for realsies, because, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, whatever name you come up with is canon. <laughs> for now. For now. For now. Until, until we redact it and put something new in there. I mean, I guess the answer to that is probably just not Patsy, right? Like, yeah. I think we'll go around the table and each say a syllable. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> Pat. Agonius. Patagonia. <laughs> <laughs> oh, just new Patsy's just a hype beast. Yeah. <laughs> oh. More Patsy questions. People people really wanted to know the specifics of, of Patsy. <laughs> um, so we've got another another question from Courtney slash Ashantiana, which I have paraphrased because it was very long and Courtney Ashantiana, I, I just want to say that these kinds of questions that sure people have really engaged with the law just like feed my heart. So thank you. I have cut it down a little bit. So Baramos admitted to taking different parts of other people to make Patsy, but when Patsy unsewed himself, he chose not to take any of the parts and became a baby instead. Was that because of the crab or was Baramos wrong about it? If Patsy could become whole, then could the other parts that were once sort of his be given another chance at life? Was Patsy the brain of the body and were the other souls dormant the whole time? How will having been attached to other people's souls affect the new Patsy? Hi, it's Sammy here for a little Sammy Law Zone. This is a great question. Um, I should just say as well, uh, you do need a PhD in QD to understand the last couple of episodes, <laughs> um, unfortunately. So I think the simplest way to think about it... Okay, so first of all, the question is, was Baramos wrong? No, Baramos wasn't wrong. Jolene came in clutch by putting together a potion to bind 
Patsy's soul together just in time. So if Jolene had not done that, Patsy would have dissolved into nothingness as predicted by Baramos. I straight up thought that didn't work. It didn't work in the way that Jolene planned for it to work. Right, right. Yes, no, that that's that's what happened. So that was an essential action. It just there was no obvious immediate follow through of that. That was the reason that Patsy didn't die. That is why we have the scene of him choosing how to put himself back together. Oh. Okay. Uh so that's number one. Number two. So it's a great question what it means for Patsy to reject all these parts and then become his own thing. There's a lot of ways to look at this. I feel like the most positive is that this is, I guess, a form of soul laundering. Um, (laughs) (laughs) That uh, where under Baramos's guidance... Patsy had been many souls stitched together that were just kind of doing their best to function as one soul. By going through this process and being reborn, the souls, I guess, essentially fused and sort of reformed into a single whole soul instead of many part souls. Now, that's not exactly what we say happens there. That is what I imagine. I guess the alternative is that whatever a soul is, Patsy himself had developed one by contact with these other souls and then had sort of continued on into a new body with that new soul he developed and then the other parts of the souls had in fact, I guess, dissolved and just returned to the universe. This reminds me of a conversation that you and I had, I think, following that to kind of piece it all together. And this is deep cutie lore stuff, but souls are energy sources in the cutie world because basically it's the energy of the universe i guess that's kind of all falling down into the flat earth that is the world of cutie and this energy kind of pools in places and that's what a soul is so the way i understood it was that the energy from their souls were kind of they're being kind of held together but like i guess like oil and water they were kind of resisting forming a coherent soul and then when jolene uses the potion it kind of I guess emulsifies them. (laughs) Like, like they're finally able, that energy is able to be released from the vessel that it, or the shape that it once was and come together into something new. So Patsy, Patsy kind of is his own person, but then in the moment that he dies and is reborn, he's actually his own person again. And that rebirth is kind of the idea behind the way that Nim and Cremora and Jolene reformed the world. Mm. Um, obviously, as characters, they didn't know about Patsy's, I guess, reincarnation. But as players, I thought it all just like, for me, I know it came together just mwah, chef's kiss. Yeah. It was so good. Um, and this idea of like people who don't get the chance in life to be themselves. And so they don't, that person doesn't get to come back. But that energy, that soul gets to come back and have another go. And Patsy is the first one who gets to do that. Yeah. So I guess under either, whether you believe that Patsy is like, I guess, reconstituted out of those souls into a way that makes him wholly new, or whether you think that the old souls, the energy of those left and it was just like a new spark was born from them. I guess the the key thing is that the old souls are gone now in in essence like their memory and their, I guess, identity and Patsy is essentially a freshen. Big old fresh soul. (laughs) The only thing that somehow carried through was the voice. (laughs) (laughs) 
That's the glue. You can't escape it. The glue. I guess the the other thing to probably mention there is that some of the parts that Patsy could have chosen were actually from Baramos. Yeah. Like, Patsy had the chance to give Baramos a second go as well Mm. at Redemption, and he chose not to. So Baramos is obliterated. Baramos is in the Signana zone. Baramos's energy has been redistributed. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Wait, does that mean Baramos energy could be anywhere? And nowhere. Our next question, which is kind of for you, Jared, kind of for Sammy, hmm. kind of for everyone. Uh, from Tiffany McDermott, who says, Was it absolutely necessary to make Signata's death so soul-crushingly sad yes. and Patsy's sacrifice? Yes. Do you yeah. like making yeah. us yes. cry? Uh-huh. Yes. Yes. Yeah. yes. We like making ourselves cry. <laughs> That's what we started this whole thing for, basically just to make ourselves cry. <laughs> Signata's death, I guess final death in particular, I mean, we didn't go into it trying to make it that fucking sad, mm. but... uh. Then Jared delivered that one line, and I don't know about anyone else, but I was crying. Mm-hmm. <laughs> one thing I really love about QD is that Sammy does a really good job of making harsh consequences for particular actions. So if the impact of something is real, or if there is like a gain back, like the gaining back of a dead character, there is consequences to that that are real. But while also doing that, also checks in with the character and honestly makes sure that if this is something, especially in moments like that, that that's something they agree with and they're fine with exploring, which very much went into both those deaths. Mm. But yeah, especially Signata. I, I was a bit like, I was caught off guard too in a way, but uh, I, I, to, uh, what was this, get behind the editorial screen, there was a period of time I had to take away to think about what Signana actually would respond with at that moment, like that true death. and that, oh, Yeah, because yeah. whether it be anger or I don't know, like a trying to like a happiness or like a thank you for saving me or setting me free. I like, I don't know. I, it was more, I wanted something that would be impactful mm. um, without just being like to make like the death feel real and feel. And I just sort of went through like, well, Signana at their very core was about being seen or being noticed. Like the, their original thing was to prove themselves to Papa. And so to have that be their death is something absolutely terrifying. I had to go from the angle of fear. Mm. Changing that one-liner that defined Patsy and making it something sad, just absolutely fearful. Yeah. God, it was heartbreaking. Yeah, that sucked. That was heart-wrenching. We we had to we had to call. I think we hadn't had a very long session at that point, but we called it. We were all just so sad. Yeah. And and I, like I do want to just emphasize something that Jared said just there is that we do talk about this stuff. It does get cut obviously in the editing booth for the sake of the narrative and the story. But you know, we are checking in with each other. There was one point where Sammy could see how upset I was because obviously we all record remotely now but sammy and i are still sitting in the same room sammy could see how upset i was and she stopped and said are you are you okay are you fine with this going forward and ultimately i was but if i really hadn't been we would have walked it back yeah Mm. i'd just like to take a moment uh to thank everyone for their hard work and um just to specifically blame jared (laughs) (laughs) so it was actually jared's idea like to have it be where like if, if you hurt 
death it hurts Signana. And I just think that people don't talk mm. about that enough. <laughs> that is true. It was a joint effort, right? Like, yeah. Jared was like, what if this happens? And then Scarlet was like, well, Cremora is still not going to hold back. And then I came in and was like, well, what would Nim do if she saw this? Like, she's going to trust and protect Cremora because that's what she fucking does. And then Jared comes back in with that, that one line and it was just like... We're all trying to one-up each other on devastation. Yeah, because I think it was those ones where, like, because a lot of the times, a lot of the most interesting things comes with, like, the I think it's, like, the medium success thing in Dungeon World. Mm. Wait, there still needs to be something negative, and to have that always be damaged can sometimes be narratively boring, and I think we're all brainstorming together as to what the consequence could be. And, oh, like, or something to make the situation really dire. And, yeah, like, I would put that forward as being, like, a, hey, this thing. The hostage situation of it is like, well, do you, do you let them go? Like, you, like, do you let the situation fall apart that way or do you lose what's dear to you? I think it made so much narrative depth. Yeah. And I regret nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I think, um, something that we, I, I don't think it was something we ever consciously decided to do, but it's something that you can tell changes in the campaign, certainly post Cremora's death when everything changed. But we start treating death with the gravity and the significance that it deserves because so much so much of the time when you're playing role-playing games, whether that's a tabletop one or a video game or whatever, progression is based on combat and killing things. And it's it's not necessarily a bad thing, but I think it's something that we would all do well to be more aware of. And so having a character like Signana, who's in so many ways so innocent, despite his annoyingness, be the victim of that and, and not holding back on it and not pulling that punch or giving us as players or characters an out is kind of... It's so juxtaposed with like the beginning of the campaign where we're just like, damn gods, kill him, you know? <laughs> Snake's pants guard, dead. It's a theme that I'm really proud of that we've kind of drawn out of this story, I think. Insert Fallen Down from Undertale. listening if you like this kind of content head on over to our patreon where you'll find gm notes cast interviews and discussions and lots of other fun bonus stuff if you have other questions that weren't answered today why not come say hi on the cutie discord and ask us there we love hearing from you tune in next week for part two bye God, I can't wait to make you all really mad in season two with everything I do. <laughs> I wouldn't have it any other way. I've already, you know, upset you all enough by the idea of full bear and full frog. And <laughs> no, I fucking love that. I think the progression of time. I, I actually think it's a really, it's a fun, it's a unique um, way of doing a time system. Queer Dungeoneers season two. Emperor Palpatine has returned. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, <laughs> You're going to have to cut that too.